Welcome to Phone Talks. On the occasion of Phone Talent 2020, Phone is producing a special series of podcasts. Each episode focuses on one artist, aiming to evoke a conversation around his or her approach, motivations, and dreams. In addition, each conversation features a special guest that has a shared professional or personal connection to the artist. I'm Mirm Koyman, curator of this year's Foam Talent exhibition and your host for this series. Our first conversation is with New York-based photographer Philip Montgomery and the New York Times Magazine's director of photography, Kathy Ryan. They have worked together on different editorial assignments in which both constantly seek to balance the fine line between photojournalism and fine art. Starting point of the conversation is Montgomery's series Flashpoints, with which he features in Foam Talent 2020. August 2014. A man in tears is held back as his friend is arrested during a confrontation with the police in Ferguson, Missouri. The city erupted in protest following the fatal shooting of Mike Brown by a white police officer. March 2020. An empty J-train in Manhattan's financial district as New York began its shutdown at the start of the global pandemic. September 2017. While a mother stretches her hand onto a body bag, we see a family mourning the loss of their son, Brian Malmesbury, who died from a heroin overdose in the basement of his family's home in Miamisburg, Ohio. Opioid-related overdoses are the leading cause of death for Americans under the age of 50. Seeing the work of Philip Montgomery takes you on a journey through recent times in the United States. His series Flashpoints is a portrait of American volatility. The subjects of Montgomery's images are everyday Americans, caught between moments of grief, crisis, anger, euphoria, fear, and relief. While he clearly references a long tradition of documentary photography, Montgomery's approach is more cinematic. Scene by scene, his work comes across as a never-ending strip of film, chronicling the signs of his time. Thank you so much, Kathy Ryan and Philip Montgomery, to join us in this conversation today. It's really great to have both of you from New York in here and to be able to talk about what's been a crazy year and how the two of you met, how you collaborated and to get a bit deeper into the essence of the work of Philip Montgomery. So Philip, just to start it off, um, you have to work, you have worked for the New Yorker, Vanity Fair, the New York Times Magazine, the Atlantic, the Guardian, the New York Times, you name it, and all these important newspapers and magazines. But what made you decide to submit your work to Foam's talent goal? Well, first, first and foremost, thanks for having us on. It's it's an honor to talk to you. And um, yeah, I think thinking back to when I submitted for Foam Talent, um, you know, I'd really I'd visited the museum a handful of times and was really familiar with the magazine um, and had sort of wanted to figure out a way to, A, really, a lot of, a lot of times when I submit to you know, whether it be contests or sort of open calls, I really see the value in that process of, of giving the work a new breath of life. Um, and it's kind of a moment for me to 
curate a lot of my own work and look back at it and then sort of recontextualize it. And so initially when I had submitted to Foam Talent, that was, you know, that was one of the one of the incentives to do so is to kind of collect the work, re-edit it into a piece and and you know present it in a in a way that I think would fall in line with sort of Foam's mission and style of running running photography. Because your work really comes from more of a, a yeah a corner in photography that's more photojournalism and documentary photography. So what what motivates you to actually display it in an art context? I think you know the my what what really drives the work, and I've said it you know many times before is I, I serve the reader first and foremost. That's that's really what. Um, is at the core of my work, and you know that's why I, I really value collaborations. You know whether that be with Kathy or other other publications. But at the end of the day, too, you know what what lives on is the photograph, and I am also interested in in other mediums of where the work could go. Um, and I've always been fascinated and excited by the exhibition space and and how bringing a level of um of journalism to that space could really open up a new audience um a lot of times i think about the shelf life of the projects that we work on when we're when we're working in the editorial space um and it's pretty fleeting you know you'll have sort of a week where your work will be ingested and looked at and processed um but I, I, you know, as the years have gone on, I've been sort of interested in how those photographs can start to work together and, and live beyond that space um, and can be, I think, so visual and graphic that they can enter, you know, inter, interface with, a, with a, another type of viewer in another setting. Because it, it really creates a whole different approach to your work. Um, basically, what we are showing in uh, the talent issue of Foam Magazine and subsequent Foam Talent exhibition are really all these single images taken out of reportage, uh, out of much larger stories. And we've basically, when you and I worked out how we would display your work in the exhibition, it becomes this big jumble. There's no chronology. Um, it's all these snippets of much larger stories. So what it, it clearly communicates something completely different from how you started to make those photographs and how are they are ending up on the wall of the museum. Um, how does it feel for you or what do you, what, what, what other message are you trying to convey here? I think initially it, it sort of happened strangely by accident. I had really, a lot of this all started for me. I say this all, you know, the the work, my collaborations with, you know, um, with folks like Kathy really started back in 2014. And at the time it was, it was me, you know, me moving from story to story and sort of giving each one of those my everything. Um, but then there became a point around the time that, you know, Trump 
began to run for president that I really started to pull back and look at the work and realize there was a, um, there were all these underlying themes in the work and that there was also like, a, there was a visual connective tissue that was going on. And that was a real sort of aha moment. And I started to think about every, you know, piece of work that I began to make in the United States in that time, really starting to apply it to a thesis and a hypothesis. And I really started to look at how each picture was connected to another one, you know, whether that be um, a story that I did for the New York Times Magazine on, on um, bail reform in New York or, um, you know, real estate properties that Jared Kushner owned and how that sort of spoke to a housing crisis in the United States. All of these stories, which at the time I'd been viewing as one piece, one story, one sort of commission, really suddenly became one giant story of an American narrative. And that's when I really started to apply a specific headspace and a specific visual style um, that I try not to deviate from. Obviously, each 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 assignment requires um, a collaboration between you and and you know the individual that you're working with, um, and that you'll deviate you'll deviate a little bit in style, but more or less, I think with you know with with people like Kathy, you know Kathy, when when we work together. Kathy knows what she's going to get visually and in, in terms of stylistically. And then, so there, there's this, there's this large trust and you can sort of unload on it. So basically with this body of work, which is titled flashpoints, are we looking at the, actually it's, is it just the beginning of a lifetime's work or do you see this as a series that might be ending soon, maybe because um, Trump is not the president of the United States anymore. Or do you, could you imagine an ending, or are you just getting started? It's an interesting question. I don't know if I'm getting started per se. I, I also don't know if I'm ending per se. I think what we have to remember about the Trump presidency is that there were policies that were enacted and put into place that we will be seeing the repercussions of both nationally and globally for you know a long time to come um you know that exists in the border space and in, in you know around topics of immigration uh, the administration more or less ripped that part of uh you know the you know the, the administration upended immigration policy in this country and there's a number of things that I think just journalistically and that I'll be keeping my eye on just because one administration comes in doesn't mean that we're not still feeling the repercussions of the last one um, so I don't I don't necessarily say I don't think it's safe to say that it's that it's done um, I'll just have to more be it's not going to be as obvious I think um, and it's going to require you know some serious thought and research no, of course, um, of course, we don't know what what else is waiting for us, uh, especially yeah. in a year like this one. Who knows what the next one will be like? 
Um, but maybe um, we can also just go back a little bit to where things started for you. Um, from previous interviews with you, I understood that um, the documentary War Photographer on James Nathway uh, inspired you to become a photographer, actually. Um, so I know you talked about this already, but it's just, I'm still curious to know what it was exactly in the documentary that triggered you so much to pursue this path. Um, I can't help but laugh. It's it's such a funny like uh, such a funny origin story amongst like a very specific uh, group of photographers that it's it's almost it's almost comical. Um, but yeah, it's true. It's true. I had had a, a really abstract uh, love for photography when you know I had I was really lucky in that I I found photography early on, thirteen, fourteen, fifteen, and I was. A photographer with my high school yearbook class and I had come across James Knockway's documentary on TV like midway through high school I must have been 15 I couldn't even drive yet um and it completely it rocked my world I had never I had never could have imagined that the medium at the time was capable of doing that it was incredibly visual and sophisticated work but also was really effective and hard-hitting in its message and i think my teenage mind exploded in certain respects and for me that was that was sort of it and i i was enamored with the craft i was enamored with the reporting um and and there was there was no looking back um, it was just, it was, it, it blew my mind. So my, my, you know, my understanding of photography really existed in maybe landscape photography or, um, certain, certain, uh, sections of National Geographic. Um, but that was pretty pedestrian. Um, but what Nakwe did was he, he focused it in that at the time opened up an entire genre of photographers for me. And this was around uh oh wait this must have been 2004 2005 so there was all of this incredible work coming out of um the wars in iraq and all of these incredible photographers that were producing and they sort of became these celebrities to me in my in my town in in california and i was so far from that um it's so interesting to think about it now as we talk to you know as we talk as i talk with you and i talk with kathy a lot of that work kathy was commissioning and working on um so it's sort of surreal to be thinking how formative that work was um and and yeah and now being able to follow in their footsteps yeah if, if, if you say so <laughs> yeah. Well, I think we can say so, um, but you didn't really become a war photographer. Does it feel that way sometimes? No, it doesn't feel that way. I didn't become a war photographer. Um, that's the, I'll, I'll never ever identify as that. Um, but the 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 documentary practice, sure, yeah, absolutely. It's actually, uh, I promise you, I won't talk much further about the documentary, but it does t start with a famous quote by Robert Kappa saying, if your pictures aren't good enough, you're not close enough. And that 
actually did make me think about your work again, because looking at your photographs, you always seem to be incredibly close to the situations you are capturing. As, as if you're in the scene, um, while also being the outside observer. I think for many people, it's still hard to really imagine how you get, how you can get that close. Because we learn through your photographs what's hap what has happened, but you have to be there to record what's happening. You know, how, how do you do that? How do you get so close? And how do you know how to be where at the right time? Um, I, I don't know. Uh, I, think, I think a lot of it's rude. I'm an only child, um, for starters. And, and there was a sort of loneliness that, existed around being an only child that required me to be extremely social and and really obsessed with um with people i know that sounds a bit basic but it's true um i was always sort of wanting to strike up conversations with with anyone and everyone that i could um and i think when, <laughs> and sort of accidental joy of this type of work is it requires getting really close to people really fast, despite any sort of uh, ideas you might have about them. And I love that part of the job. I really do. It's 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 honestly my favorite part of of doing this type of work, more so than the photography. I know we're on we're we're speaking about photography on with a you know a major photographic institution, but I do think that I'm I'm almost more uh, excited and interested by the part of the job that requires me to get super close to people in the most earnest of ways. And I think when I'm doing that, I'm at my maximum. Um, and even if it's people that I perhaps, uh, dislike, um, I still love that, that time of, of approaching it and, and wiggling, wiggling, wiggling closer to, you know, a relationship with, with, with each person I photograph. So for me, that's, that's, you know, it's a bit obsessive. I enjoy, I really enjoy it. But I guess this Does that is answer your question. Well, that, you how, how you do it, I guess that's also where people like, like Kathy come in, in helping you getting there. Right. Um, of course. Kathy, can you maybe say something about how do you make sure the photographer is at the right place at the right time? Hmm. Uh, before I even answer that, I, I'm just intrigued by what Philip just said about being lonely as an only child and therefore really wanting to get close to people all the time. Like I had never thought of that aspect of what you're doing. And of course, that's a crucial part of it because over and over we've sent you into situations where really sometimes in a matter of minutes, you not only have to get really close to people and make some really distinct connection, you have to do it often with people who are in a moment of crisis in their lives. You know, and that is a special gift and talent. So it's just interesting because uh, I hadn't thought of that. Obviously I know that you're extremely good with people and it's part of it, but the idea is that's partly what's driving you. Um, how we get you, so the question had to do with how we have you in the right place at the right time. I guess right? a big part of what we do as photo editors is 
exactly that. It's trying to set up, first of all, to find the story, the best possible place to shoot it, the access to try to get the kind of access that gives the photographer the opportunity to make strong pictures. That's crucial, you know, that's key. Clearly, you don't know how it will unfold until the photographer walks in the door. But a big part of what we do is try to uh, make something possible. You know, we're often the catalyst. Like we, we put it in place. Like we get the photographer there, and then truly, clearly, it's up to that person to to make the pictures and work within the reality of what's unfolding and the um, uh, the restrictions on the ground. You know, it's as you were talking. Like a lot of what you're saying, it's interesting to me when I think about the great photographers. You know what what it is that defines you. And I think the biggest part probably is somehow making order out of chaos, right? When you look at the vast majority of the assignments Phillips done, he's gone into a place, whether it's a hospital that's teeming with patients with the coronavirus, or whether it's a funeral home that's overloaded with bodies, or uh, whether it's a demonstration uh, uh, after one of the police killings, like he goes into place where there's chaos unfolding and he has to make sense of it and he has to make sense of it primarily visually, instinctively, politically, in terms of the information. So like, I just always am amazed that it's this profession that requires several interlocking skills, like artistry is key. And that gets at what you're talking about when documentary intersects with art. And it's important, particularly for a magazine like New York Times Magazine, because often stories repeat themselves. There's a familiarity to the subject matter that we cover. And someone like Philip brings a distinct visual point of view and an eye that he's developed over years of developing his craft. And in photography, that's often involves lighting. So Philip has a unique form of lighting. That's one part of it, the craft part. Another part of it is the uh, search for clarity. Again, it's a little bit like chaos, but clarity meaning, you know, if you're going to publish your pictures in the New York Times Magazine, you are trying to bring clarity to what are often difficult, complex, layered situations. So I always think about that because in, even as a photo editor, a big part of what we do, the photo editors are trying to balance getting the person with the right artistry, the right eye and ability to make the image with the person who's got the right knowledge of the subject matter to understand what's unfolding, to shed light on it on a journalistic sense. But then the, the other key element, it's almost like a tripod and what defines a photographer like Philip, I think is the mission. And that gets at Philip, what you were just talking about that you began to realize the subjects you were drawn to were not disparate fragments at all, but you had a thesis. Something's going wrong in the US. Started for you just about the time uh, Trump was taking over and you were onto something. Because the big part of, uh, I think, being a journalist and a photojournalist in particular is you have to find your subject. And that subject often will come to you if you're on a mission. And Philip is blessed with a mission that there's something he is out there all the time connecting. And it's got to do with uh, what's happening with the moral fiber in the US, what's happening with the political reality. And we, that's a whole, you know, we could go on and list all the things. So it's just a way of answering, I guess, your question about how we have somebody in the right place at the right time. Part of it is choosing the right photographer, trying to. There's so many good photographers working. A lot of what we do is creatively is really talk back and forth, me and the photo team, who's the best possible person. 
based on what we think the possibilities of picture making will be on a pure practical level when they get there, based on, and then based on, uh, again, the formal look of their pictures, the way they frame the composition, the lighting. And then I think the other key thing is that, is, is the person on a mission, Philip's on a mission. But I think that's, it's also um, one of the things that inspires me and so many people uh, in the scene about the work you do, Kathy, is how you are able to, well, you really, you have this, you dare to work with very young and talented photographers, give them their first assignment and you don't, you're not even sure but you have this faith that they can accomplish things to uh, and bring it to a very good result. So apparently you're very, um, you feel confident to take those risks um, and also to make very creative combinations between photographer and subject. So how, how do you, yeah, maybe it's just a very, the experience you have and a good instinct to make those pairings, but is there any key to the success? <laughs> you know, honestly, and, and here this includes all of us, the biggest key in, in my background is a work ethic. And in Phillips, it's also, I think that's another defining thing is the work ethic. You know, I didn't have this confidence for years. I didn't, I, I learned on the job. I was blessed to be at the New York Times where I was hired without experience that I needed. I was, it was, it's like a university there. And I have a, a strong work ethic, you know, every single story matters so much to me. And I'm also uh, fortunate to work with extraordinary people and that I can't emphasize enough. Magazine making is the ultimate collaborative enterprise because it starts with the editor in chief. Jake Silverstein, our editor in chief is brilliant and committed and loves photography. And it was unbelievable, you know, on March 13th, Bingo, we all had to leave our, our offices. We're suddenly working from home. None of us have ever done this. We're putting out a weekly magazine. And I, to his leadership of this I still boggles my mind to be able to do that. And just within hours, not even days, we had to figure out the technical thing and the connection and the communication and having that kind of leadership, which led to Philip working for us because Jake immediately said this, we have to make this story's coronavirus at that point, obviously uh, early March in New York is going to be huge. And I really want to come at it in a very big way, aggressive way photographically. And that was a key, again, key catalyst because that sent a big signal to me and the photo team. We got something here. We can do something big. We have to make this good. You know, it just gets you fired up and scared. You know, I still, I head into stuff with enormous fear. Will it be good enough? This is major. We've got to do something that stands the test of time. And then that ultimately, you know, that just led to our, we'll get Philip because he'll get in there. And then the photo team has to make it, kind of bring it to life. Like one of the things that still amazes me is seeing in an ideas meeting or, you know, an ideas conversation, editor in chief, it's just an idea. It's this ephemeral thing. And, and I just always, it's incredible that we have the printed version, like we actually turn this idea into something and it, it exists. And, you know, the, the hardest part, the creative part, the primary part the photographer has to do, but there's a whole lot that leads up to, as you were asking me, like, how do you get to that point where they're in the room? And 
like with the hospitals that uh, story that we did, a key thing and that was uh, one of our photo editors and someone who had just come to join us to add on to our staff for the for this pandemic period. None of us knew in March how long it was going to unfold. Clearly now we know it's long, much longer than any of us ever guessed. And it was Shannon Simon who joined on with us and I asked her to work in getting access to the hospitals. That was huge. Just getting us in the door. There's no photos if we hadn't gotten it. And she got that door opened up and we got access to seven of the public hospitals in New York City's public hospital system. Uh, crucial. And then of course the whole uh, interaction unfolds of the editing, which was we're a very tight group, me, the photographer, the designated photo editor on a given project, and of course, the editor-in-chief, Jake, and then Gail Bickler, our design director, is always a crucial part of that too, because the way it's designed and laid out. So uh, again, I'm, I'm, I feel like I'm verging uh, away from your questions, but it's just a way of saying that uh, my, the work that I do, it's you know, uh, the confidence to hire photographers uh, who are starting out, I think comes from the confidence I have being at the times where, I don't know, we have a structure in place and a team that we can make things happen and rise up. And then my years of being in the business, this is where uh, having some uh, uh, years behind you helps. You know, it's like, uh, I have explained that there are many times when I have to make a quick decision and I know part of the ability to make it who's the best photographer for this assignment uh, is based on years of uh, looking at photos, looking at art. I majored in art and history. So I came to art not from journalism. I learned journalism uh, on the job. And then uh, it's somehow a gut instinct. Like I, when I first, okay, first thing is you look at the pictures the photographer makes, you're like, wow, those are good pictures. They're creative. It's all about creativity. Somebody's figured out how to, bring a new unfamiliar look again often to familiar subject matter because the news repeats itself although i say that to you in, in this interview this time it's first time probably in my career that there's been all sorts of news this year <laughs> we haven't experienced anything like this so it's just again uh there's been even new challenges but it, it's partly just seeing beauty as part of it seeing beauty in the work you know philip knew going into those emergency rooms was often the emergency rooms the icus intensive care units in the hospitals, that the lighting would be terrible, awful fluorescent lighting. That's a challenge. So he went in there prepared with years of developing a certain kind of uh, adding light to a situation and strobing it or, you know, uh, continuous light. And basically he looks at, he thinks like a cinematographer. He knows going into the situation, he anticipates, anticipating things is a big part of what you do in the business anticipates what he's going to encounter. So he's got a plan and he knows in the emergency room is gonna be all sorts of unbelievable mess, partly of which will add to the greatness and the power of the pictures, all those cords and those IV machines and the doctors and the frantic gestures and the intensity in the eyes. But part of it, he's gonna be able to shape according to his needs by heightening an expression on a face with his lighting and letting the other unnecessary cords, if he doesn't want them fall to blackness, you know, as it, it light falls off on the edges. So all of that is crucial. That's partly why his picture is so good, is that he he knew what he was going to be up against and he had a plan in place based on at least 10 years of working and shooting and, and honing the craft. Because one of the things I'm always in awe of, of with photojournalists in particular is they have to have a 
a finely honed craft, again, which is strangely uh, interlocking with, not strangely, but with the kinds of, um, in a good way, I mean, uh, pursuits of artists. So an artist goes in the studio. Sometimes craft doesn't even matter for an artist. It often does, but sometimes it can be the lack of craft can lead to extraordinary creativity because they make a different kind of mark, different kind of gesture, and, and they're reinventing the craft. And the photographer has to have, the great photographers have that, that looseness, that ability to seek out mistakes or things that don't follow the tradition. But they also have to actually be really good at the craft because photography doesn't just happen. So if you're not able to control to some degree what you're going to see, you're not going to have the best pictures either. But yet you also have to be ready to not accept what's just classically beautiful. It's like you want to marry the classic with the modern. Like Philip's work is incredible because it both evokes early Life magazine at its greatest black and white classic photojournalism but it's modern. It's got some other kick to it, which is, you know, we'll let Philip speak to that, how, how he got to that place. Yes, exactly. I'm, I'm, I'm really curious, Philip, at what point did you start to understand that you really found your own distinctive style? Hmm. I'm not sure. I think <laughs> there was, I had, I had, yeah, I had, I had had a mild interest in a mild interest. I, I I guess a predominant amount of the photographers that I had loved were black and white photographers. Um, you know, I, I shoot I shoot color as well, but I think with this body of work, namely, it, it is a black and white medium, um, or it is a black and white um, series. Uh, I think I can I can't remember the specific time, but I can speak to what sort of triggered the work for me and it was or that that specific look was i'd seen a book called scene of the crime are either of you familiar with this no um, no um, yeah scene of the crime is a book by i i need to find the printer's name but a black and white silver gelatin printer got his or her hands on the lapd's crime archive I and took all took all of these old negatives that and printed them to the sort of maximum of a silver gelatin print and it's amazing because otherwise these pictures were really just serving as evidence there wasn't any visual tricks to them they were photographed as these sort of big flash flat documentation evidence of a scene in a space and there were a few pictures that I had made across a number of different stories that I had worked on where the result almost sort of looked like those pictures. And I, I started to think about th that approach to the work and how that could sort of serve the reader and that I would be in these spaces and we'd always be looking for you know, a new way of, of angle or an interesting way of framing. But I'd also had moments where the, the, the room itself was so boring and so flat that it was almost nice to lean into that. And I think that work and what it served almost kind of, for me, it, it really started to, to inspire a lot of the uh, the ways that I would photograph these stories, um, showing the reader 
exactly what this room looked like in all of its boring nothingness, you know, whether that's an eviction in a house and, you know, they're packing up a Christmas tree. There's something so flat and boring to that scene. But if you lean into that, it, 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 it sort of, it sort of works. Um, and then I also realized that with that way of lighting or that with that way of shooting too, that, um, that I couldn't really play any tricks anymore. So I had to really pay attention to the content of the picture, you know, and there are, there, there's other ways that I light that, that are, they're a little bit different that are a little bit more dramatic. Um, and, and that's, that's a whole nother conversation, but, um, I think for me, it's it's trying to reach into the picture. Like I, I'm thinking of a more recent picture I had made actually while while working with Kathy. It was um, I was in Michigan for this election, and there was a room of uh, men and women who were counting ballots for this election. Right, the room was so boring. It was the most boring <laughs> space you could have ever imagined. It was it was stuffy, it was small, it was tight and completely uninteresting. But what was really interesting about it was the sheer volume of ballots and the sheer hands on ballots. But again, it was one of those spaces where the the what you were presented with visually was really quite uninteresting, but the actual action and the back, you know, the backdrop the conversation around the fragility of the election was was so so loud and so intense and so and so potentially you know dangerous um, that to me I, that room was 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 really intense um, and that was something that I think with with photography and the magic of photography that you can sort of play with um, and still be accurate to the scene. Um, and and not really trick a reader, and if that makes if that makes sense. So I became interested in that in that in that way of seeing. Um, and it's well, how, sort how of did you? The work. What do you mean when you say play with and still be accurate? As so, you say that, what do you mean by obviously, that? Obviously, I mean obviously that space that space isn't. If 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 you and I were to walk into that space, it didn't look like that per se lighting wise right there weren't these like dramatic like shafts of light um were that's what you but, brought to it yeah yeah that's what i brought to it and i think the reader can understand that they're highly you know especially with the magazine that's what's yeah. so incredible about collaborating with the magazine too is is um they will take you know much to kathy's credit and to jake's credit and to gail's that they will take huge risks on pictures and they'll run pictures that, you know, otherwise, you know, no one else will run and they'll put it big and loud and they'll put it out front. Um, and it's, it's amazing. And it's an incredible trust. Um, okay, can you say something about what is a risky picture? Mm, yeah, I can, I mean, I, I think about a ton of photos that, that are risky, um, not risky, but they're not, they're just really interesting ways of illustrating, and they're not quite on the nose. Um, uh, I mean, there's 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 risky as well. I mean, we we did this this year. You know, Kathy and I worked on a really devastating and tough story 
around funeral homes in New York that were overwhelmed by, you know, the, the, the coronavirus. Um, there simply wasn't enough room in these funeral homes across the city to store bodies. And, you know, family members were calling funeral homes, begging them to take to pick up their loved ones from the hospitals. And another devastating aspect of the story was that, you know, families were not allowed to to mourn the loss of their loved ones because of social distancing, because it was dangerous to hold a funeral service. And we, you know, we spent a lot of time at that funeral home and we met a family, the Purewall family, and they, um, you know, they agreed to us being there for the funeral of their father and who had lost his life to COVID. And I had made a photograph of, during the service of one of the daughters of Mr. Purewall putting her hand to his head. I'm sorry, actually, it was, it was his wife putting her hand to his head and it and she had a glove on and it was a quiet picture. It was, but it was a picture that spoke to the moment with the glove and that sort of separation. And it, it was a picture that when I made it, I knew I could trust the magazine with, and it's not, if we, if you trust the magazine to make, you know, tough decisions about how we illustrate this, how, you know, making sure that the tone was right and, and, you know, appropriate, if that makes sense. I, I don't know if that's even the right word for it, but it's, it's mm -hmm. an obviously a really difficult picture to work with, but, you know, at the magazine, they collectively understood how their readers would, would process a picture like that. And if, you know, and what I mean by, I suppose, safer pictures is there's other ways to illustrate a story like that, that are high impact, you know, but I think that picture resonated because I, because of the collective, you know, experience, Kathy, especially, and the risk that's involved in that. Um, and there was a lot of, there was endless conversation around that sort of decision-making and, you know, conversation that I was privy to and not privy to. Um, and so that's, that's one example of a picture, but then there's other pictures that are, you know, uh, less, uh, you know, that I, I'd have to, I'd have to think back on, but there's pictures that I'll file and I, I can't believe they'll, they'll run. It's kind of amazing. Um, um I'm also, yeah. I mean, one of the, the, the huge downside of, of everything that has happened in 2020 when it concerns phone talent is that we had to cancel um, most of the uh, exhibitions because it, it was supposed to be a touring exhibition. Uh, the only one of the very few upsides to it was that it allowed us, um, so Philip and myself, um, the possibility to actually put in more recent photographs of yours and the picture you just described actually ended up in the exhibition because we decided uh, around March and April to add photographs that weren't in Foam Magazine but actually did end up in the exhibition because he kept sending photographs as we went, went on through the year, uh, which is, yeah, 
now actually um, on display in foam when the museum reopens. But uh, so I just wanted to mention that, that I'm really grateful that we could actually, that we kept updating your work um, to the exhibition wall yeah. as, we, as we were speaking. Um, but I'm sure that Kathy also wants to respond to this because it's I really part of your job. Yeah, <laughs> I do. Although it's interesting as you're talking, I'm thinking this is a case where the foam, which leans to, you know, art museum, then becomes more journalistic. I love it that right up until you were closing mm -hmm. it, you had the desire to include some of those. I, I salute that, you know, so it went in that direction, which is kind of nice. But I did want to talk for a minute what Philip was just talking about, you know, the uh, question of um, publishing difficult pictures. This particular year was the most intense in, ter in terms of those discussions for the reasons of the subject matter. And, you know, the picture that Philip was just talking about, the cover portrait of Mr. Purawal with his widow's gloved hand caressing his head in the coffin, we discussed it great length at the magazine. Jay, the editor-in-chief, and uh, Gail, and me, and Philip, like, we took that very seriously. And also, the picture editor in this case, Debbie Samuelson, was the one who uh, initially got the access to the funeral home, the, the, uh, and she had continued to have a nice phone, you know, uh, relationship with the daughters of Mr. Purwall. And so it was, it was a very, very difficult time. Like this, the sensitivities involved with publishing both the cover story on the coronavirus in the funeral home, as well as the sensitivities involved in publishing the patients in the hospitals were huge. We had, with the patients in the hospitals, we came up against, of course, tremendous uh, questions of privacy. You know, we absolutely respected that we couldn't show the identity of any patients who hadn't given permission. And by definition, everyone then had not given permission because as you know, the hospitals were overflowing. They were often on ventilators between the masks and the ventilators. On the one hand, you can hardly make out who the patients are. And none of the family members were able to come into the hospital, much less the room, to be the ones there on site to get permission. So it's just a way of saying we had permission to cover it with the agreement that we would be very mindful of the privacy laws surrounding photographing in a hospital, and we were. And then in the funeral uh, parlor, it was the same situation where we took tremendous care to, um, uh, we wanted to show the story at its most powerful, which involved showing dead bodies, and at the same time be extremely careful that we wouldn't in any way cause any further grief to the family members. And yet it's hard to answer that sometimes, even after years in the business, because on the one hand, certain family members will feel like it's honoring the deceased to feature them in the magazine. The others, you just don't know. It's a deeply emotional time, but uh, we discussed great length the, the cover image, and we made sure that we were, that family was going to be comfortable with us publishing the pictures. And we lost some photos. Like Philip and I can tell you, this was a case where both in the hospitals and in the funeral home, there were certain pictures we ultimately decided we couldn't run out of respect to privacy. And right. uh, on so the other was, hand- That was your decision or 
was that well, after a, receiving feedback from the involved families? So that's a decision. Uh, it, it was the magazine's decision even going into it. We would be very careful about protecting the privacy of the patients or the deceased, which of course we would. And uh, it was part of our agreement with the hospitals that we would be extremely mindful and careful of that. So we wanted to stay within those parameters. And then with the families, it's a little bit more, uh, uh, it's not like a black and white breakdown. It's keeping a close connection. Philip developed a bond with them, so he had a very good sense. He knew the pearl walls were okay with him photographing them. They gave, he was there for a lot of what they were going through. And that's, he's a deeply personable person. And it, it was interesting to hear uh, Phil talk about that based on being only child and wanting always to be connecting with people. He clearly was able to do that. And then in the hospitals, the same thing happened. Like at one point we went in initially, he went in, we had a list from the hospital uh, authorities of who we could photograph. But the minute you enter the emergency room, it's a free for all. There's no way you can just photograph this doctor or that doctor. The chaos. And they trusted Philip. Like he could make eye contact with them and know. And Philip said to me at one point, they're, you know, those surgeons, those doctors, they're like alphas. They're not gonna, you're not gonna be making pictures if they're not okay with it. So anyway, just a I'm probably saying too much, but I did want to talk about in some ways the most uh, challenging pictures to make those decisions with are often the best ones. So it's even heightened by the fact the picture in the funeral homes, in the funeral home that uh, in the Ferenger brothers funeral home in the Bronx where Philip did all the photos, there's an extraordinary picture where Sal Ferenga is in the embalming room where they prepare the, the bodies and he's holding up the hands of one of the deceased and the hand is being washed. And the way in which Philip, the fine lines of how to photograph that, I can't even understand myself how he did it, but he ate, he was able to capture exactly the gentleness that Sal Ferenga was bringing to this job. Like he does that all the time in his job. He's washing the bodies, he's doing the bombing and bombing preparation. It is not something you often see, that lay people often see, and it certainly isn't something we had published in the magazine before. So even in my long career, it's the first time I remember us coming up against, I, maybe I shouldn't say the first time, but in this kind of thing, in a funeral home in New York, certainly was, coming up against showing a body like, like that, and, and Philip, by just showing a hand, it became something else. I felt like it transcended into being a picture of that transition between life and death and the caretaker here being the funeral parlor owner who was also bringing sensitivity. Like, I, just a way of saying there was much discussion about that picture because I knew that that picture would probably become one of the most iconic. So there's a tremendous desire on the part of me and the other editors to publish that picture and Gail, the design director, you know, we all, and Philip, of course, we want to publish it, but we discussed it at great length just to make sure you try to see it through your reader's eyes. And Philip has said this before. He feels he has a responsibility to the readers, and of course we do at the New York Times. Ultimately, that's the, the responsibility is to the readers and the family, and you're trying to work in that zone where you're pushing the boundaries a little bit. Just Philip being in the room making those pictures was very difficult for him emotionally. And what 
this was a crisis. Like we also always, starting with the hospitals, felt the tremendous need as journalists at the Times to get the story out there. Because remember, this was when people weren't sure, should they wear the mask? Should they follow the quarantining? It was also new that a lot of people weren't taking it seriously enough. So I just wanted to mention that. We don't think about that so much now, but at the time, Philip and I discussed that a lot. Like a part of what he was doing, we were doing was saying, we have to get these photos out there. These will alarm people. Yeah. They will take this seriously. People will wear the mask. People will quarantine. That kind of uh, dialogue was simultaneously happening. Right. Uh, and, I'll, and I'll follow that up by saying, Miriam, that's a perfect example, though, to your question of um, a photograph that I didn't necessarily think would run or would surprise me as being selected. When I made when I made the photo that we're discussing, I I spent a lot of time on it, but it was one of those ones that when I had sent it to the magazine, I really just assumed that it 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 wouldn't it would it would sort of be uh, not overlooked, but it maybe it's maybe it's a little too abstract. Or I, I don't know. I, but but when, when... Yeah, it's funny that you say that because I've, I think it's actually everything but abstract in the sense that um, one of the, you have been in such a unique position by having access to these places and sort of chron um, chronicling the things that were unseen at that time. So what is actually happening in the public hospitals where no one can visit uh, their loved ones, and um, as as Kathy was already saying, like how are how do we relate to this virus? What is it actually? What is it doing to people? If you don't have it, you don't. It's hard. It was up to that point hard to see what it was actually doing to people, um, and the fact that even though because of those privacy concerns, you weren't uh, allowed to photograph people in an identifiable way. To photograph a hand like that as being washed uh, of a diseased person who died of coronavirus is actually, if I see a picture like that, that's where I start imagining, but that could be my mother's hand or, you know, it could be my own hand. It's, it's a way of, so it's not just hard facts, photojournalism, it's actually, there's, it has an emotional magnitude to it that really enables the viewer to identify with it. it be, and it, it be, yeah, it gets a universal value that makes it really, really strong. Yeah. Actually, anything but abstract, because it comes yeah, so close to the heart. Yeah. It's interesting, yeah. And I, I guess I say abstract in the sense of like, if, you're, if your goal or your objective is to illustrate and document a funeral home and and you're you're I think I had probably went in there with the objective to illustrate volume. My my head was in volume. Mm. And then my second my second you know objective was was looking at craft, craft and on behalf of the funeral directors. It was, you know, a multi-generational, you know, funeral directors um, who had owned this this space. And what they do is highly specialized. And, and right now, or during that time, it was incredibly busy. So I, I became very interested in, um, you know, the, the 
preparation of bodies and the risk that those men were taking in honoring the dead. And so, you know, this photo, the photo that we're discussing, what was going through my mind when I was making it was really seeing a, um, a man who's executing craft, if that makes sense. I know that 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 sounds kind of intense and potentially insensitive, but I just remember when we were in the room, and I say me, when I say we, myself and my, you know, my assistant and collaborator, his name's Trey, Sal Ferenga, who's, who's the man who's washing the hand of the deceased, he was carrying on a conversation with us really casually. I think we might've even been discussing music venues in, in New York. However, his, his handwork, the way that he was washing this person's arm was so delicate and so loaded with empathy and concern and care that I was just so fascinated by the, the juxtaposition of what was coming out of his mouth, but then the physical gestures, if that, if that makes much sense. Um, so I guess that's informed when I like, when I work on the picture and then I send the picture in. So perhaps I'm, I, I was a little bit surprised when, you know, there was, when, when folks had a very, you know, powerful reaction to it, um, as, as you're, as you're saying here now. Also, I wanted one, one last thing I wanted to touch on too, is when doing this sort of work, there's an incredible amount of trust that goes on between you and the magazine, right? And I'd say the New York Times Magazine is at, you know, is, is the elite of, um, it's an elite team of editors and writers and fact checkers that you can make really sensitive and intense work and know that when it's handed off, there's going to be a really, uh, there's going to be a huge discussion around what to do with the work and how to place it. Um, and that's that's been such a, you know, that's been such an incredible um, opportunity in, in, in collaborating is, is, is that trust. So, um, you know, cause it can go, it can go wrong. It has the potential to go wrong quick. Um, but Kathy's experience um, and, you know, Gail's experience and, and Jake's experience at the magazine, it's, 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 it's so valuable and, and allows for myself and a number of colleagues to, to make, make this work. It's, it's really special. And I also, I appreciate that. I also want to mention Jessica Dimson, who's the deputy director of photography is incredible. Who's been, she was with the uh, uh, feature on the mail-in ballot, which was the third cover story that uh, Philip uh, had a, in that in that case role in it. He covered the postal workers. So you wouldn't even guess how hard it was getting access to the postal workers. Turned out to be harder than anything. Which basically the head in, in Washington D.C. said, "No, we, we couldn't do it." And Jessica worked around it through the unions and ultimately got access. I just wanted to mention that because there's a set of amazing pictures there mm -hmm. that the catalyst was just going, we got going. And then when the pictures came in, 
she was as she was editing them. I mean, it was amazing. Like we got the picture of the postal worker. And it did. There's one who has a a suntan, and there's a line left where his glasses normally sit. His sunglasses, mm -hmm. incredible photo. I, I thought it was like the guardian angel, and I just remember the excitement when she and I saw that. So I, I just emphasize that that the we're under such pressure all the time because we're weekly, so everything has to be done at top speed. That, like for example, the kind of connection just you know, side by side that I have with the photo editors, it's immense. I, I cannot tell you how important it is. So, so many of the dialogues are between me and Jessica or uh, Amy Kellner, who's a picture of who worked on several of the big cover stories uh, during this past year, and David Carthus and, and Rory Walsh. I really want to emphasize just how uh, crucial they've been to this. And Kristen Geisler, who did a Bit lot of the mail-in ballot, all of whom, uh, it's a tremendous team effort. Like it just, again, everybody has to constantly be making the visual decisions at the same time, making the logistical, tactical decisions at the same time, aggressively uh, getting us where we need to be. Uh, it really is just the, the best team in the business. I guess that's so interesting um, for me to hear because when I'm engaging with photographers and artists, you know, it's for me, I, I mostly work with the romantic idea of the this sole creator of the work. And that's, I guess, here in this conversation where we're talking both about art and newsworthy content and, and that fine line between it uh, that yeah, is constantly being crossed in, in photojournalism and documentary photography. That's a kind of a completely different field in photography that's, to me personally, quite far removed from what I deal with on a daily basis, working from more uh, photography in a, a museum context um, and uh, artistic perspective. So I'm, um, I'm really fascinated by how Philip's work actually moves between yeah. those contexts. Um, I'll, I'll mention, yeah. if I could just interrupt for a second, I was just thinking as you're talking too, that uh, like on on our team, Jessica Timson and Amy Kellner both have art history degrees. Like it just, that says a lot, right? So that they both have amazing eyes as well as again, the other photo mm -hmm. It's just such a crucial part of it trying to constantly bring art to the journalism and journalism to the art. It, and that's what probably is so unique to us that the vision of the team and the magazine somehow can sort of uh, keep those two things uh, moving forward all the time, uh, each enriching the other. And it's essentially what defines the medium of photography. Yeah that it moves between those, or it's everything at once, or it's either or both at the same time, which is fascinating about the medium to begin with. Right, right, totally. And and to second that, I think now and making work during this time and the way that, you know, globally we interface with photography, our reader and our viewer has a very sophisticated understanding of photography and visuals right mm -hmm. and so for us at least when putting together stories for the magazine and stories for a general audience and readership our 
reader is now far more uh, fluid in the vernacular of, of pictures. So the bar has sort of been raised that it's not, we can't just get away with showing, showing something in a really sort of basic way. I mean, there, there is a mm -hmm. place for that, I, I think. But I think that when our goal is to grab someone and hold them there for longer than is, than is comfortable, whether that be in an exhibition space or whether that be in an editorial space, that's where I really see that the burden of responsibility lies on, on me for that. Um, it's, it's demanded of me to make pictures that are super visual and can, can hold the person there longer than, than they otherwise would with that sort of topic. And, and that, that just kind of brings it back to a picture like counting ballots, a really boring like <laughs> subject matter, I promise. And, and, but right there you have to sort of figure out how to squeeze blood out of a rock and and that's kind of what all of these uh commissions and stories that i've worked on with with kathy specifically kind of have in common and it's 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 maybe for better or worse something that i've been uh in a bad cycle with or a good cycle with with the magazine where a lot of times i'll go in and, and nothing's kind of ideal at all like we might not have like we might not have great access or we might not have a very visual space but you can't really retort to your editors like Kathy with a like it's boring here it's it's it, that's not really a, that's not really an acceptable sort of answer um so i think it's on it's on me typically to to figure out a way around that you know um and it's often the case that the situation when I arrive there is not very good or visual. So <laughs> it's, and, and I have a certain sort of knack for that of, of figuring out, all right, what the hell are we going to do here? This is not good, but we'll, we'll figure it out. Um, I have to jump in and say, at the end of the year, about a week ago, the New York Times published their year in pictures. So this isn't the magazine, but the New York Times, the paper. They look at thousands of images. The quality of work this year, of course, was mind-boggling, like just extraordinary, the amount of great work. And the, the picture that Philip's talking about that he keeps going back to having to work in that scene with the counting of the ballots that was uh, not inherently dramatic, the picture he made is so dramatic and so powerful, they gave it a full double-page spread in the broadsheet in the wow. year in pictures. They, they chose it for the year in pictures and made it a double page spread. So it is the ultimate testament to Phillips' powers to, that his ballot counting picture, which shows just to describe it to listeners, it's about a dozen women and they've got lots of papers and ballots and they've got their masks and they're at a long table and they're, anyway, they're counting it. Just, that's alchemy, that's magic to like take that scene and make something, it, it looks like the opening scene in a movie. True yeah, it's it's strengths. really yeah it and that's that's of course obviously that's this cinematographic quality of your work Philip is also I think um, that's definitely one of the things why you were selected as as a film talent um, and um, I was so happy as as we already spoke about before to. To bring in all the photographs, like to add the photographs you made throughout this year um, to the Foam Talent exhibition. And um, 
So how you got access through the New York Times magazine uh, to the public hospitals in New York to cover the COVID-19 crisis going on there towards, um, yeah, basically all these things that we just talked about. But one topic that um, I think is also important to address, which we also added to uh, to the Foam Talent exhibition um, within your series, Flashpoints, is uh, the photographs you made um, of the Black Lives Matter protest upon the killings of uh, the killing of George Floyd. And um, also because when you posted those pictures on your Instagram page, there were some comments that um, even though people really appreciate the photographs you made, that it wasn't your story um, or that um, it was at the time that you photographed for Vanity Fair. And some people were saying that Vanity Fair should have given the, uh, the assignment to, um, to a black photographer. Um, but here we see how it adds up to all those important events um, that you've been covering. And I remember that we had a conversation about it at the time when we were still working on the exhibition. Um, yeah, so how do you reflect upon this difficult subject now? Of being the right right photographer for the right subject. I think. I mean. I think it was really important at the time. It was. It was a little bit disorienting because um, I was. I was in the middle of making the work, and I had also. You know. I had also been injured while I was there. I was shot by the police, um, and I think at the time, it everything felt so um, out of control, um, and there was obviously a lot of intensity around the moment, around the subject matter, which has been long, you know, has been going on in this, in this country since the beginning of time. And, and it's obviously a very, it's a very uh, contentious and, and, and tough discussion for a lot of this country to have to reckon with again. Um, but I think I, at the, when I when I reflect on it now, I'm I'm really happy that those conversations happened. Um, it was also a moment for me to sort of reflect on on my process and my way of, of working and and how I will handle that in the future and also handle that at the time as well. Um, but you know, I think and there were also some some pieces to that. You know, I I flown myself out there to to make that work and. I see my purpose and my role in, in my photography at this time is, is, is chronicling the nation and photographing these moments in the American experience that sort of work and speak to my thesis around, you know, the, the body of work that I've been building. And I've been photographing the intersection between community and police for many, many years and the militarization of America's police forces and what that looks like on the ground. And this was another one of these moments that was both historical and important for documenting and looking at the moment that I, you know, as, as important as the conversations were and as much as I learned from that, I do think I would, I would, I, I was happy I was there and 
I was honored to be there. And I think that the discussions around representation are extremely important and I'm glad we had them. Um, but there's no but. And <laughs> it, 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 I, I was honored to be there as well, you know. Because correct me if I'm wrong, but uh, I remember it's one of the photographs in in the Film Talents exhibition um, is of the Ferguson unrest as well in 2014, which I remember you saying that was basically the starting point of flashpoints of your series, or am I wrong? Yeah, it, it a lot of the works sort of begins there, but I think even prior to that that um, moment uh, in the in the American conversation around race and policing, um, you know, I had been I had been doing work on policing in the form of a story in you know Newark, New Jersey, on stop and frisk, um, and I, there were just there started to be these sort of opportunities to look at policing in the United States. Um, and what's, and that's, that's kind of what I was kind of hitting on earlier is when you work on one story or one subject matter, suddenly you'll start to see this connective tissue. Mm -hmm. And those, those moments are important for me to be there in order to start to like, sew the fabric together, if that makes sense. Um, and, and so with, with Ferguson, you know, that was, I'd gone to Ferguson with the, with the idea of really looking at what does it look like when there are military grade tanks in a suburban street? Um, and, and so that was, that was my pull to that story in that specific moment in the American experience. Um, so yeah, that's, that is when it started. And I've, and I've subsequently photographed, unfortunately, you know, countless, um, countless cities and communities um, who are mourning the loss of one of their arms at the hand of, of police, of the police. Um, and it is an important element in, if you're going to make work on the United States, race needs to be addressed. Um, and it, it's, it's, it's a, it's a tricky one, but I, I'm learning how to approach it. And it's, it's a constant learning process. And, you know, that time in uh, Minneapolis in the wake of George Floyd's death was, was, um, it was a learning experience for me. And I think largely for our community. And it was, it was a really important conversation. Kathy, how, how do you reflect on this? I mean, it's, it's, basically your job to find the right photographer for the right subject. So this whole um, uh, discussion has this brought new insights to to how you see your work? Yes, I think it's very, you know, obviously it's extremely important for a magazine to have a diverse group of photographers and writers. Uh, people bring a perspective to a story and to the coverage. And I think with this year, uh, picture editors, me included, have really uh, are working to strengthen and broaden the, the, the range of points of view in our publications. And, and uh, one of the positive things that's come out of this is uh, I think the uh, some of the collectives that have been formed of black photographers, it's been a terrific 
uh, kind of uh, just putting work out there. I'm thinking of um, uh, the CN Black project. There's several where uh, it's just an incredible resource for picture editors to keep discovering new work, which is the point of what we do. That's what I do all the time is look at work, go to exhibits, constantly look at what's out there, look at new portfolios. So I think that um, it's been, uh, there's been more discovery of um, photographers of color, which has been uh, very, very important. You know, when we make assignments, and again, I always say we because it's me, uh, you know, leading it, but with the other picture editors, we, we think long and hard about the perspective the photographer is going to bring. And that's, again, sometimes it's the look of the pictures, the lighting, the uh, type of uh, composition, uh, history and tradition. And sometimes it's the, the photographer and who that person is. Uh, whether it's a black photographer, white photographer, Latinx photographer, will that bring uh, a point of view and a perspective that's important to the story that we're covering? Absolutely. So that's part of the discussion. And sometimes an assignment is, is absolutely uh, going to be uh, stronger, I think, if, if the photographer covering it is part of the community. You know, sometimes sending somebody in who's part of the community, they understand the nuances. They, uh, if they, uh, if the black photographer, they, again, also have a mission in their work and their life and their photography. Uh, and I think that's important to be aware of. And to sometimes, uh, there are certain assignments where that will absolutely enrich the coverage that we are doing. Uh, and I think you just have to look at each assignment in terms of who's going to bring the best uh, perspective to it. And again, artistry, journalism, and uh, I think there are certain assignments where if it's, and particularly it happened with the protests as you were just discussing with Philip, where there was a strong feeling on the part of the uh, community of black photographers that it's their story to tell. And I think there's some truth to that, that certainly uh, the story is so close to the heart for many of the black photographers, and this is such a historic moment that that opportunity should be theirs. And at a magazine like ours, we're in a position to, uh, to make assignments, and that's important because you want it. And again, I hope that our pages have shown that we, as you were saying, constantly are looking for a wide range of talent, the new photographer, the a photographer who's who's uh, legendary you know like i think it's we just are stronger if there's a rich mix of voices and points of view and historic backgrounds and family stories and visual uh perspectives and histories um it's really important to the photography that we publish and you know i think there's uh there's an, there, we have to all be extremely sensitive to it and thinking about it and trying to figure out how to make sure that we're not uh, somehow missing a perspective. And, and um, I think this, mm -hmm. this summer and the protests in this year in particular has made that very clear that uh, the publications weren't reflecting their readership often in terms of who was getting the assignments. Again, here we're talking about photography. What, a, what becomes really clear um, in relation to your 
to your work and and how uh, you're chronicling your the, your times, uh, Philip, is is that if in this case Vanity Fair would not have given you the assignment, you would have gone there anyway. Um, which uh, brings me to the question: What do commissions such as Reportage for the New York Times Magazine or other um, news outlets. Um, mm -hmm. What do they mean to you in relation to how you are developing your autonomous art practice? I mean, I say autonomous, but I know that they actually completely intertwine. But how do you relate to, on the one hand, well, making a living out of um, commissioned work and yet mm -hmm. see the larger picture of what you want to build for yourself as a as an autonomous photographer or artist, if you will. Mm. It's a good question. I haven't, and it's one I've perhaps yet to unpack. Uh, I it's hmm. I I don't I don't I. I it's interesting. I, I there are there are specific times that I'll be photo, as you would say, like you know, I'll be photographing autonomously, you know, where it's not, um, you know, I'm not relying on the aid or even you know, not working under the pressure of a deadline. Um, but I don't exactly find there there really isn't too much of a difference in the way that I'll approach the work when I'm doing it. Um, in fact, I, I I really do find that it's it's helpful. Let's just cut out the entire, you know, uh, financial part of this and just get down to the sheer collaboration. I work really well under pressure, and there is a certain element of having to not let down the people who have put an incredible amount of trust in me to illustrate the story properly and and make these these photographs that that fear I, I i operate on fear a lot to be honest um i hate to admit it but i think i mean i think we all do but i am driven by that fear of oh my god we're gonna blow it we're gonna blow it we're gonna blow it like this is bad this is bad this is not good that fuels my way of working all the time um i i often like hate myself on all of these shoots and having um, hating myself and letting someone else down is a is a big motivator when I work on when I work on these. Um, that sounds it's, it's incredibly bit, stressful. Oh, it's extremely stressful. It, it's not there's not much fun about it, um, but it does fuel my intensity when I'm when I'm working on these. Um, to where when I'm sometimes when I'm quietly and cathartically photographing alone um it's 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 often not uh you know it's not as potentially good um because there's no one to let down except myself like it's that i'd rather you know if, if this is if this all makes sense um so I, I i haven't quite thought too much about how this this all looks when i'm just working on something for me for this for this work versus when I'm when I'm working under the pressure of a deadline. Um, I, I quite prefer the deadline um, because it, 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 it we have to really turn up the heat 
and and you know I have to turn up the heat and, and produce something. Um, well, obviously, these commissions they they actually provide you access to places that otherwise maybe on your own you would not have been able to to enter. Absolutely, like absolutely. In the collaborative process of working with, um, which I adore, I love working with with writers. Um, they're their own breed of incredible, weird, eccentric individuals who, you know, bring an incredible amount of intellect and thoughtfulness to the process. And, uh, you know, whenever, and that's, yeah, of course, these, the, the, the publications allow for, you know, me to have incredible access in, in certain places that I otherwise wouldn't be able to, to work on. But that's not to say, you know, to bring it back to Minneapolis and George Floyd, that arriving and going and, and making work in a, a moment of that historical value in the American experience, that's, that is far more, being there in person is far more powerful than any sort of pressure of a deadline. You, you are so immediately moved and overwhelmed by the enormity of this story and trying to wrap your head around um, the individuals that you're meeting and photographing and what they're going through. Um, and you're, 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 you're humbled by that, you're moved by that, you're learning through that, and you try to just do your best to make pictures that will illustrate that pain and illustrate that experience that, that, um, that folks are going through. Um, and that is obviously far in those moments, they're far larger than the assignment or they're far larger than my goal of making pictures that, you know, document this time in history, right? That is essentially what I'm, what I'm focused on and I've been focused on for years. Um, so it's a, it's a, it's a dance, um, a dance of emotions that is, um, and yeah, it's a weird, it's a weird, at times it's a weird, uh, they're weird experiences to process making work in these highly sensitive situations and where they fall, what you're trying to please. It's your emotions are kind of up and down, but, um, it's an incredible craft. It's an incredible job. It's an honor to do it. What strikes me so much about your photographs is that on the one hand, they reference a huge tradition in documentary photography, perhaps also mm. because you prefer to shoot in black and white, um, predominantly. And on the other hand, well, of course, they're extremely news newsworthy and, and, and timely. So there's yet a timelessness and a time uh, timelessness to your photographs, but they're also very timely because they say so much about the time we live in. And um, actually, Kathy, uh, Kathy, in an interview, I don't want to put you too much on the spot here, but in an interview, you stated that in a digital age, um, working for a photography magazine, you don't want to stick too much to the 35 millimeter black and white documentary reportage uh, style as because it signifies the past of classic photojournalism. 
Um, it's not like you were dismissing that style at all. It's just that it makes me curious for what kind of stories you specifically think of Philip to cover them with this, this style he has. I love all genres of photography. So just to put that out there, <laughs> I love black and white documentary in a classical tradition. I love color, sort of abstract photography. It's a very uh, rich medium in that sense. So for Philip, I think of him for uh, humanistic stories, deeply humanistic stories that involve issues. So uh, uh, stories that Again, uh, there's some element of human uh, emotion and crisis and news unfolding, like it, stories that have, uh, I don't know, you know, human drama at, at the heart of them. I mean, that's the kinds of, although listen, I, everything I do, I end up by, by um, then I mix it up because, I signed Philip to do a whole portfolio of famous actors for the great performers. I've got, was that two years ago? It seems a lifetime ago. Yeah. Part of the fun of my job is to, again, try to cross the sign, surprise people, because you, it's a win-win. If you surprise, if you, if you sign a photographer who doesn't normally go in the studio and do, you know, actors, somebody as talented as Philip, he's going to do something wonderful and interesting and it will feel different. And, if you, I don't know, I think that's part part of what my, you know, the goal is for a picture editor and, and the readers benefit because then the pictures look lively, you know, but then you, you change it up. I'd say most of the time, Philip, I would think of for the kind of human documentary story that requires a lot of experience just in how to cover it. You know, when you, uh, some of the situations are dangerous and literally require physical courage. Uh, other situations require tremendous, even, you know, uh, I don't know, logistical knowledge of how to, how to do something. Uh, I think that um, Philip comes to mind for those, but he did a wonderful job on the actors. He had a ball. They loved working with him. You know, <laughs> he just approached it in a different way. And that's, that's a lot of the fun of what we do, that sometimes you actually want to assign a photographer to do exactly the kind of work he or she is known for. Like maybe there's, you know, that's particularly true of the assignments that uh, maybe are big international assignments in uh, stories that are unfolding that involve crisis, you know, news unfolding, because it actually requires experience to, that wouldn't be a case where I'd send somebody in who had never done that kind of work if it was a major story. Person has to get a start somewhere, but, there's certain things like that where you need it. But then there's other moments when it's just highly creative and you want somebody who's the risk taker and the kinds of imagery that they make. You know, there's a fun thing going on right now with the uh, portraits that are being made via Zoom sessions. You know, with all of the endless uh, challenges we face with putting out a magazine in the COVID area, era, one of them is people don't necessarily want a photographer to come into their space. Speaking here, obviously, particularly of uh, people of renown, whether it's actors, writers, you know, subjects that, that we're going to do. And the only solution we have is to do uh, a distanced, a remote shoot. And I'm loving this. I'm loving it. 
you know, people are doing some terrific work with it. Why? Because it forces a photographer into a zone of how do you make a picture through the laptop with the subjects on the other side of the world and maybe you're lucky enough an assistant's in there with them with the camera. Maybe it's the subject with their, you know, best friend or their mate taking the picture at the photographer's direction, but all sorts of things you can do with the abstraction that occurs with the, you know, light and the once removed quality of a picture shot off the screen or maybe the, the photographer is projecting the image onto the wall that's coming from the software and the computer like it's a nice time it, it gives you a chance to do mm -hmm. something different so i forgot the question that we started out with isn't that terrible what was the question <laughs> that you asked well if um um saying that philip mostly works in black and white not solely yep, but mostly got it. that's right why that sometimes actually works so well even if it does it, it might reference a whole history of of more traditional photojournalism not to say that black and white is per definition <coughs> traditional uh, but yeah i i guess i'm also just a bit fascinated by as soon as a as a photograph is black and white it, it sort of becomes history in a way I mean, just to, the same as when you think of uh, older times uh, and you think in terms of, of pictures, it seems like uh, before our lifetime, the world was black and white because it simply yeah. was never recorded any other way. <laughs> well, the huge advantage of black and white and why we all love it so much and it stands the test of time, the huge advantage is it eliminates unnecessary information. So if you're Philip and you're making a picture in the emergency room, let's say, it doesn't matter if they're wearing blue PPE or if they've got a red something or other. In the situation he's in, the color can be a distraction. Whereas if you do black and white, it emphasizes emotion because as soon as you eliminate all the distractions of the colors in their, either the headgear they're wearing or what's on their masks of the doctors or unnecessary color then you're you're honed right in on facial expressions you're honed in on the gesture of the of the um, funeral parlor owner's hand gently cleansing the hand of the deceased like it 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 just eliminates some of the information that's not going to add to the emotional tenor of the picture and black white has a huge power but you touched on the hard part for a magazine like ours being published in 2020 I get, at first I used to not believe this, but I totally do agree now that sometimes publishing in black and white signals subliminally history. So I, I, certain readers, I think they see it in black and white and there's a, right away there's some kind of assumption, it's a little more nostalgic, it's historic. But some of what we do is replacing bets and assigning Philip to shoot this wildly contemporary story of the pandemic in March was placing a bet on the fact that the power of the black and white that he would make wasn't gonna signal history to anybody, that the, the benefits he would reap by being able to shoot in black and white where it's all about emotion and the swirl of arms and chaos and everything that was happening would be overriding the uh, tint of historic on this, I, I I don't I just felt like it was a moment to go classical that the we knew that the human drama would be there, so we didn't need to bring some other 
you know, uh, layer. Like sometimes when you're photographing, again, let's just say actors to choose something we've just been talking about. You actually need to mix it up. You need to artify it and add either unexpected color, change it up. You need to take liberties. The whole point is to take some liberties so that you can make something new and fresh and you have enormous latitude because if it's a famous face, you have even more latitude. People are going to recognize them so the photographer can go to town. But if you go into a hospital that's experiencing the worst crisis in its history because so many patients have been admitted that week with COVID, it's not about taking liberties. It's more about just uh, basically calling the reader's attention in your pictures to what you want them to see. And it's got to be vividly real. It has to be a pure document because we are the New York Times. We really adhere to strict uh, journalistic ethics standards. You know, you can't alter anything in the pictures. So you've got to actually have the skills with your lighting and co composition to make the image unfiltered, unfettered, all about what's unfolding in front of you. So it's about choosing your position and figuring out when to look here instead of looking there and, and building a rapport with your subjects. Like that's what it comes down to. And for some reason, certain stories like this, putting it in the line of history in black and white felt right. This was a historic pandemic. Again and again, we see it's a once in a hundred years event. And we could have covered it totally in color. And we have somewhat done it in color. We have also done some coverage. You know, we did a, a um, cover story uh, why we're losing the battle with COVID-19 in July. And that was in the, in the, um, in hospital, in, in hospitals in Texas. And uh, I commissioned Raheem Fortune to do the pictures and he photographed it in color and it was magnificently done. Very vivid, very real. It was great work. And it was great to then sh switch it up because that was now the second time we were going to publish pictures from the hospitals. And then as a picture editor, you think, you know what, I don't want to, re we don't want to repeat ourselves and do black mm -hmm. and white. And Raheem is there. He knows this area. He'll make beautiful, powerful human pictures in color. So it's always that question of, is this a moment for color photography or black and white? It's a paramount question. It's one of the hardest ones sometimes, to be honest, you know, and, and it's, uh, there's no doubt color suggests now black and white puts a tinge of history on it, but black and white just has an enormous power for the human stories. And, and again, it's Philip's medium and we were commissioning Philip and that's what he's natural. And I also feel like when you try to answer that question as a photographer, because often, I mean, it's a lifelong question. It's both for a photo student and photographers probably somewhat continue to address it. Once you find your voice in your picture making, you have to go with it. And if you're a black and white photographer, you're a black and white photographer. Like what would be the point in telling someone who sees the world in black and white, you need to make the pictures in colors. They're not going to have the power. Like you, I, I don't know, in my yeah, own like small way, I'm not a photographer. Uh, although I love making pictures with the iPhone and I do the office romance series. And I often think to myself, you go to black and white, it's, it's, it's too easy. But I love it. The pictures I fall in love with. So every time I have that dialogue, and I sometimes make a picture in color, nine times out of ten, I look at it, and the one that speaks to me is black and white. So you have to actually go with what, as a photographer, speaks to you. And if, you know, some are colorists from day one. They see the world in color, and that's what the pictures are about. I find color incredibly challenging. I, I salute people because it really does add this other thing you have to wrestle with. 
And that's the other thing that I find so hard. Like the minute you have dominant color, like a red or green, and there's so many photographers I want to mention, but I feel like start talking about other photographers. It's like a, it's a whole other <laughs> podcast. You should. You should. I know. I want to, but it's you it's, it's it. It, where the work's about. Well, uh, no, let's do it. it. Let's it, go there. It's a lot. Um, <laughs> One of the uh, one of the things that I think real quick, just to add to that, Kathy, one of the things that's, that I think would be interesting to readers to know, too, is I think for I'm sorry, listeners to know is that a lot of the work that Kathy and I have done together and collaborated on, we actually don't really have an idea on whether it's going to be color or black and white. And there's a, there's a, there's been a few times, you know, a, a number of times where the conversation is always like, would you could you try could you try color or could, would you be open and for me that's always a big a big fat yes um uh but somehow some way they, they always get flipped to black <laughs> but i mean one story more recently and also like and also thinking back to shoots that are outside of these sort of heavy hitting um journalism stories you know kathy and i worked on an incredible kathy kathy and um, another incredible photo editor at the magazine who's since left, um, Stacy Baker. We worked on an incredible studio shoot for the brand new production of West Side Story. And it had come out right before, you know, unfortunately, everything started to shut down this year. And that was, that was a, that was an, the ultimate sort of studio shoot where everything was controlled and that was me having to exercise a completely different muscle. And I feel like, you know, when I enter the studio space, I'm extremely intimidated by it. It's the opposite of the way that I think I shoot. It's controlled, you go in with a plan, you have a team, it's a production. And for me, you know, the, the way that I work, it's typically solo or with one other person. Um, and so, you know, I, I've, I've gotten better at, at knowing how to do these shoots and, and in fact, loving them a bit. But that was an example where A, we came in with both with all of our options open for color, black and white. And the story sort of got, or, you know, the work sort of guided us. When we were there, we had we had really just had the idea to photograph the entire thing in a world of black. So we just built huge black curtains and then we lit the entire space in a way that just focused on the sculptural quality of the show and the incredible athleticism and the incredible talent of these dancers. And it was a mix there of really controlled sequenced shooting where we would build these, you know, sort of massive complicated forms of bodies that were on script with the show. And then we built another side area where we were just able to improvise and really let the dancers do their thing. Um, and when we talk about when you were asking Kathy about her decision making and commissioning for, you know, specific artists and photographers, I think Kathy has a really good understanding from experience and, and you know, quite simply her genius of um, uh, understanding having a pulse check to the room and and sort of understanding the the sort of tricky nature of the shoot and who would be best not only creatively but in temperament hmm. and that was one of those shoots that required i think some patience because there was so the, the volume of people was a bit insane that <laughs> yeah. there are photographers that that i adore that are 
that that whose whose images are are far better than mine will ever be, right? But they're they're surgical in the way that they photograph. The de deviating from the way that they see is is tricky, and and you know I I don't I couldn't do what they do. You know, there's and I think for shoots like that, Kathy is very 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 good at knowing who to assign what to in that regard. You know, um, I have one of my favorite pictures that more recently I'm thinking about a photo of Lady Gaga by Marilyn Minter, right? Yeah. And that's a photograph that I, I don't, uh, there's nowhere in my brain that that photo exists. And it's a controlled and highly specific shoot. Um, but if Lady Gaga was, you know, spinning and running around the studio and wanted to shoot in the middle of the street, then maybe that might be a little bit more difficult for Marilyn to shoot. I don't know. Um, yeah. So it's, it's, I think Kathy just has a really good understanding of where the shoots can go and, and how it's going to be. Um, and, and that comes with experience and, and it's, it's, it's quite beautiful to see. It's really wonderful to wrap this conversation up with a wonderful description Kathy gave on your work, Philip, and vice versa. It was really great to speak with both of you because I think it, it highlights perspectives that are not always heard. We only see the photographs, especially now they're on the wall in the museum. Of course, there are captions describing a little bit of what has happened, but all the work behind it and also the team effort that you both of you described that goes behind it. It's really uh, super insightful to, to hear more about that. So thank you so much for your time. Thank you for having us. Yeah, it's our pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for speaking with us. Thank you for listening to this conversation with Philip Montgomery and Kathy Ryan, the first one in our series on Foam Talents 2020. Keep an eye on our social media for the next episode.